Grace, mercy, and the peace of God our Father and our Lord and our Savior Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, be with us this day. Today we conclude the uh, prophecy and parables series that we've been in just the last couple of weeks, um, looking at Isaiah chapter 45 and at Matthew 22. The Matthew 22 reading, not so much a parable, more of an object lesson as Jesus took the coin and used it to, to tell the Pharisees who were trying to trap him in his words um, that they were kind of barking up the wrong tree, so to speak. Right? Don't know if you've noticed this. Um, maybe, maybe this has happened in your mailbox as well, that, that there's um, these cards. Are you getting lots of cards, like these greeting cards that, um, that say, like, vote yes on this? and vote no on that, and they're addressed to resident, <laughs> a lot of them. Um, or maybe your name, I guess, if they can get that from the um, election people or something. Like this, we're in the election cycle. So there's television ads and um, debates and town hall meetings and all these things that are going on. I'm not sure how many undecided voters there are. I'm probably more undecided about uh, propositions because I just don't know what they are yet. I still have to do some research on, you know, 22 and 15 and all these numbers, right? And they're all kind of running together. I don't know what any of them are yet. I'm going to read the book, you know. I'll do my, do my civic duty and uh, take a look at what, um, what there is. But I'm not sure on the national level um, how many undecided voters there are. Maybe there are some. Um, what's interesting is locally, uh, do we get the national TV ads or do they just forget it? Um, I don't know. Maybe I just don't watch the right TV programs or something to see those things, which is fine, too. I, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm missing out. Don't worry. Um, and how many times over the last several months have we heard this expression, in these uncertain times? Are, are you tired of that phrase, in these uncertain times? There's plenty of uncertainty about the future, plenty of uncertainty about our world that we live in because everything got turned upside down um, seven months ago, more than at this point. It's an uncertain time with an election that we're facing that looks pretty daunting, right? Looks pretty significant. Our national identity, there's uncertainty about that. There's a lot of anxiety about division between people, between people groups, ethnicities, and those divisions seem more deeply entrenched than maybe in my lifetime. It seems that civility is lacking, particularly in the public square, which adds to our uncertainty. How can we get through this and come together as a nation, as a people, as a, as a culture, and kind of get back to where, where we were, what life was like, what we remember, which is a lot of what we want to do, right? We want to go we want to go back. We want to get back to when things were good. We want to get back to when life seemed right. There's one thing we can be sure and certain about even in uncertain times, and that is that God is in control. God is in control. Even when things seem like they're upside down and the turmoil is unending and there's, you know, we feel out of control and, and like... We're heading toward the, the waterfall, and that's what it, does it feel like that to everybody, or maybe just me, right? Um, 
but we can, we can know this. God is in control. His will is done in heaven. And that's implicit, right? It's easy to imagine and understand that. Revelation chapter 19, verse 6 even describes it that way. Then I, which is John, who is, this is revealed to him, right? So I, John, heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, the roar of many waters, the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. It's an, a vision that's John, that John is having of, of heaven and, and people around the throne of God, and, and they're all worshiping him and, and proclaiming this in this loud, you know, huge volume. I, I better not try to get any louder, right, just for the safety of people here. Right? But this loud sound, our Lord, the Almighty reigns, and, and we can imagine that in heaven. It's just perfect, and God's will is being done, and, and everything is in harmony, and there's peace, and the, you know, the streets of gold are a bonus when you think of the way that things are happening in the presence of God in heaven. That's an exciting thing to imagine. We pray, and we We'll pray that in a little while when we pray the words of the Lord's Prayer. We pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? As it already is, as it is in heaven, we want the will of God done in the earth. Here's the thing, his will is done on earth. We might think not always, and that's true. We rebel, we're disobedient, and in this broken and sinful world... In minor ways, the will of God is not being done, but in the significant ways, God's will is done. He is in control on earth as well. Luther developed a theology that's called the two kingdoms, the kingdom of the right hand, the kingdom of the left hand. Maybe you've heard this before. But in this two kingdoms theology, what Luther described was the kingdom of the right hand is the kingdom of grace. The kingdom that is without need for law, that's ruled by the Spirit, where we're in tune with what God desires and those things are happening, more like what, it's, what life is like in heaven, but it's not exclusively there, right? It's actually one of the reasons why we have two flags in the sanctuary, to demonstrate that visually, that the kingdom of the right hand, this is the Christian flag on this side, and it is, you know, recognizing that the kingdom of the right is where God is fully in charge and everybody knows it and responds appropriately. But there's also the kingdom of the left hand and represented by our political flag on this side, the American flag over here. The earthly kingdom is ruled through a government and reason with civic authorities in place for God's purpose. See, in the civic realm, God is still in control. God is still in charge. Daniel chapter 2 put it this way, speaking of God, that he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. That's what Daniel 2 says, and Daniel was alive at the time when a king who was announced about 200 years earlier in the book of Isaiah in chapter 45 came to power. See, God anoints the king. It's how he rules in this left-hand kingdom. 
Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped. Cyrus? Cyrus seems like an unlikely choice for a king whom God would anoint, right? Cyrus seems like an unlikely choice for a person who would work for the benefit of God's people. See, God's people, the nation of Israel, were kind of an underdog for much of their history, right? Abraham was chosen. There was a small band of folks after a while. And though promises were made to Abraham about stars in the sky and sand on the seashore, it hadn't quite gotten there yet. When there was the famine and they went to Egypt to escape the, the famine. And Joseph was already there. This is a couple generations later. And, and Joseph you know, welcomes his brothers and supports his family in the time of the famine. But then after some time, as God's people were thriving in Egypt, the Egyptians realized they better do something about that. So they enslaved the people of Israel. And for 400 years, they served in Egypt as slaves. And then eventually, this is the time of Moses, the Exodus, they come up out of Egypt, massive amount of people who end up wandering the wilderness for 40 years and eventually settle in the land God had promised to Abraham. They develop a kingdom there, but it was never that significant. It was never that massive of a land that they had acquired. And even that was lost when they were exiled to Babylon, which is really the the crux of what Isaiah is warning the people about. Because of their disobedience, because they had turned away from God, that they would be exiled to Babylon. And then you fast forward a couple hundred years ish, between Isaiah and a Persian guy named Cyrus who came along. Cyrus, whose name appears in Isaiah 45, comes to power, and he conquered Babylon. He wasn't running for office yet. This isn't an ad that Cyrus at the end comes along and says, my name is Cyrus and I approve this message, right? of Isaiah's prophecy that he would come to power and all these things would happen. See, Isaiah is already referring to a time near the end of the exile when he's talking about this in Isaiah chapter 45. He's looking ahead to things that God was going to do, a miraculous prophecy naming him by name here. Verse 1 goes on. To subdue nations before him and to loose the belts. This is as, as God is introducing Cyrus. That he's going, God is going to subdue the nations and God's going to loose the belts of kings and open doors before him that gates may not be closed. Open doors and open gates. There's an account of when the Persian army entered into the city of Babylon that... Um, uh, they, they, they diverted the river, the Euphrates River, and they, they diverted it in, into a swamp. So the water level in the river was dropping, 
And inexplicably, there were gates that were left open, and so the army went under the wall where the river would enter the city and through this area where there should have been gates and entered the city of Babylon and took it without a fight. That's an account not in the Bible but extra-biblical material that supports what Isaiah had declared much, much earlier, that the gates would be open, that doors would be unlocked to Cyrus. And Cyrus ruled a vast kingdom, the largest empire the world had yet seen, that stretched from the Middle East all the way east toward like what's present-day China and eventually down into uh, northern Africa to Egypt and beyond. So he had this massive amount of territory. And God identifies him as, thus says the Lord, to his anointed, to the anointed of God, to Cyrus. See, God had chosen him, this Persian emperor, for his purposes, this conqueror for his will. So who's in charge here? (laughs) Who's in charge here? Our God is in control. Our God is in charge, and he anoints the king. But the king of kings is our Lord Jesus. 1 Timothy chapter 6 says it this way. Our Lord Jesus Christ, describing Jesus, in verse uh, 15, Paul writes to Timothy, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and Lord of lords. Maybe you've sung the hallelujah chorus before or heard it. King of kings forever. And let's not sing it, actually. You can imagine it. You can probably hum it in your head now. And he shall reign. Words from Revelation. Describing Jesus as king of kings. That our God who is on his throne has, has an anointed one. We don't catch it quite as quickly in, in the English language because it's not the same word. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1, to his anointed. That word anointed in Hebrew is Messiah. To his Messiah, Cyrus. His anointed one. In Greek, it's Christos. In English, we use the word Christ to identify that same word, but that word means anointed. Cyrus was anointed for the purposes of God. Jesus is our Christ, our Messiah, our anointed one, our king. And we could see him as an unlikely king as well. Born in a backwater town and laid in a manger in the ultimate humility. A ministry that was far from an empire He gathered 12. He had some other followers at some point, but toward the end, it was narrowed back down to not too many. A fledgling band of fishermen and tax collectors and other fringe members of the society were really who connected with him. A radical teacher who was far more about loving enemies than he was about conquering enemies. A challenge to the authorities of his day. 
He fulfilled prophecy Isaiah had made 700 years before his birth. With words like the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which is God with us. So the ultimate fulfillment of the prophecies that Isaiah makes are in the person and the work of Jesus who came to rule both kingdoms because his kingdom is without end. The shoot from the stump of Jesse who would rule and reign over the entire universe, but that one suffered in our place. That one is the anointed Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and in our place for our sin, he died on the cross. He was anointed for that purpose, not to conquer, but to release the captives in a completely different way. Not to break into another kingdom by force or without a fight, as it were, but to come quietly and humbly and in somewhat of a covert operation, in fact, to win the day, to rule over us, and to release us who were in bondage, not in a place called Babylon, but to our sin and to our sinfulness, and to release us to be his people, his children, so that we can be his subjects and relate to him as our king and as his subjects, but he also calls us his friend. Cyrus was the king that conquered Babylon and then released the people of Israel to return to return to their home, to rebuild what had been lost, to reclaim that place. Jesus has come to release you and me from the bondage of our sin so that we can return, return to our relationship with him that is rooted in his grace, that is connected by his love, so that we can reclaim this life that was rightfully ours, except that sin got in the way and disrupted everything. That's what Jesus does for you and for me, and so we are called to honor the king. Honor the king. Jesus in Matthew 22 says these words, which are likely familiar, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. They brought him the coin. Well, he asked for the coin. They came to trap him in his words is what they were doing. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? (laughs) That's a trap question. That's one of those, you know, political rival kinds of questions, right? That's one that, you know, if we could have understood anything during the presidential debate, that was the kind of thing that they might have been saying to each other, but they were talking at the same time to the point where it was like, yeah. Because the the answer to that question, if Jesus says, yes, you should pay your taxes, then the people who didn't want to pay taxes wouldn't like it. And if he said no, well, that just wouldn't work because he would be subverting Caesar. 
So Jesus being Jesus and understanding their hypocrisy and what they were trying to do tells them to pull out the coin. And whose picture is on that coin? Caesar. Well, then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to him. So render to Caesar. Paul writes in Romans chapter 13 at verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. In both those places, they have it right that we honor the emperor, that we pay tribute and heed to the kingdom in which we spend a lot of our time, the kingdom of the left hand, guided by the government, living under the rule of government and honoring it in the ways that we should, heeding restrictions, wearing face coverings, sitting socially distanced, doing the things that are required of us, recommended to us being good citizens by obeying, by paying the taxes. So, yes, pay your taxes. What this means is no matter who wins in a couple of weeks, that we honor and respect those who are elected. And then no matter who is elected, we can be confident. We can be confident not necessarily in the outcome of the election and the person who's fulfilling the public office, but we can be confident in this. Our God is still in control. And our God who anoints kings like Cyrus well before they're even born knows what's going on, chooses whom he chooses, guides the acts of history and the works of man, sets up kings and deposes them. Our God is in control. So render to God the things that are God's. That's the second part of what Jesus says. The other side of the coin, though it doesn't have God's picture on it. Render to God the things that are God's, our love and our devotion, our confidence in him, our trust through unpredictable times and uncertain times. <laughs> Our confidence in the outcome of what's happening in us and around us, even our lives are in his hands as his subjects that can be lived for him and to his glory. So we bring our offerings and we offer our obedience to our God who is in control. To him be glory in our nation and in our lives, that he is our king and our Lord forever. Psalm 96 that we read earlier, a little past where we stopped reading, says this, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Our God reigns. Our king is on the throne. And we can be confident in the face of adversity, in the face of challenge, through despair, through disappointment, and when times are good, that our God reigns in heaven and on earth. 
Amen.